0: listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Yeah, thank you. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who is believed? that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of the many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Uh, I'll just pray one more time and then we'll get into this. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Um, It is absolutely stunning that this text was written 750 years before the birth of your son father we are i mean it is it is amazing nothing like this has happened before where a god writes down exactly what's going to happen 700 years before it happens and then the details are fulfilled to the letter God, we we want to praise you for it. We thank you that this this kind of of text encourages us, it builds us up, it it renews our faith. But Father, it also tells us about the core of the gospel. And God, we pray that you would just give us eyes, give us ears, help us to hear your words for us today. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I, I am, th- this text really is amazing. This chapter is amazing. And it's hard to not want to just dive into the whole of the chapter. There is, there is so much here. Um, but for, for the sake of time and uh, clarity, we'll, we'll stick to the, the text that's assigned. But before we get to the text this morning, I, I want to say something, say a couple of things just about uh, levels of meaning. All right, when we read Old Testament prophecy like we're reading this morning, we've got to keep in mind that there's at least three levels of meaning that are going on here. First, there's um, the text means something to Isaiah's audience. Isaiah's writing this from about somewhere between 750 and 700 years before Christ, and it's particularly easy for us to take, to read this text, and then jump immediately to the New Testament and look at this with New Testament glasses on. But we must be patient and try to see what the author meant for the audience, how the audience would have read this. Second, the text also means something particular during the time of its fulfillment. And for our text today, that means it has a particular meaning for the Messiah and the, the time in which the Messiah would appear. And, but third, the text also has a meaning for our present day, one that will often be applicational. But it must still, even though it's applicational, it's still going to come directly from the text. So I want to give a caveat to all of that. What, what I am not saying is that the text can mean anything that I want it to mean. It can't mean anything that we want it to mean, right? Meaning is, it's limited to the text and to what the authors intended the text to say. But there's two authors. Remember, there's two authors. There's God who inspired men to write these words, and there's man who wrote the words and communicated it to his audience. This morning, we're going to try and do our best to chart a path through these waters and keep all of these things in mind. So, as we read the text, we're going to observe, I want us to observe three glorious truths. We're going to see that the Messiah's remarkable, we're going to see the Messiah's remarkable silence as he submits to injustice. We're going to see how he was slaughtered for his people, and finally we're going to see how he is scorned but exalted in his his death. So, as we look at verse 7, the the first thing that we see in this text is that the Messiah was oppressed. Now, this word, oppressed, is the same word that's used back in Exodus, when, um, when the taskmasters were commanded by Pharaoh to oppress the Hebrew slaves when Pharaoh ordered them to take away the straw and then still required the Israelites to produce the same number of bricks. And then he told his taskmasters, if they don't do it, if they balk at it, if they give you a bad time, beat them. They were required to maintain the same quota of bricks. It was unfair and it was unjust. And this is the same kind of oppression... That the Savior is going to face, that the Messiah is going to face. He is going to face unfair, unjust oppression. That's what it means to be oppressed. But there's something strange going on in this chapter. When Isaiah is writing this prophecy, Judah stands on a knife's edge. The northern part of Israel has just been taken into captivity. And Judah's future looks bleak. You would think that Israel would read the words in this chapter and they'd be encouraged. You would think that they'd read these words from verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right? You would think that Israel would read those words And be encouraged. That they would look forward to this prophesied Messiah who was going to come and deal with their sins. You would think that they would look on this or hear these words and be filled with hope. Doesn't this sound like good news to you? Well, the Jews don't like this message. And the reason why is because back in chapter 6 of Isaiah, God has told um, Isaiah to go and preach to preach this message but he is going to harden the hearts of the people they're not going to listen to Isaiah's preaching the words of this prophecy are not going to be a cold cup of water on a hot day no they're going to be like the, 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 your fingernails on a, on a chalkboard screeching down that chalkboard Israel doesn't like to be called sinners And they don't like to be told that they've gone astray. Now, going back to levels of meaning, we realize that Isaiah is not writing this prophecy about his generation. He's writing it for a future generation. But what's remarkable is that the state of affairs, when the Messiah appears, is going to be very similar to Isaiah's generation. The people will persecute the Messiah just like the people in Isaiah's day persecuted the prophets. It's going to be just the same. So, if we look at the Messiah's um, response, right? If we we look at what's the Messiah going to do in response to this affliction... We find that, um, we we read here, that the Messiah, it says says in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Those words, and he was afflicted, can also be translated um, as he humbled himself. Right? So, he was oppressed and he humbled himself and opened not his mouth. This is the response of the Messiah to the oppression, to this injustice that he's suffering. And this is how Peter understands it, that the Messiah humbles himself, that he submits, he's silent, and he submits to his father's care. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, we read these, this, these same words. Jesus, um, Peter writes, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, Peter understood that this Old Testament prophecy foretold that the Messiah would suffer. But this Messiah would also humble himself, entrusting himself into his father's care. And this is exactly what Jesus This is exactly his response to oppression. Jesus silently submitted. To remain silent when you are falsely accused is humility. Jesus entrusts himself into his father's care, and he remains silent. Now, Isaiah's writing to an agrarian society very familiar with butchering and shearing sheep. And sheep are unique animals in this way. Having grown up on a farm, it, it, um, I can tell you that there is no situation that I've ever encountered where a cow, a pig, a chicken, or a horse would remain silent when they are in some kind of dangerous or threatening situation. We, we raised dairy cows, cattle, and one of the responsibilities that we had periodically, about once a month, was to... to uh, uh, vaccinate and dehorn cattle. And I can tell you that as soon as you get into a pen with, with a cow, with a young calf, right, for, forget doing anything to them, just trying to catch them, just trying to put a halter on them, it is no silent affair. It is noisy and raucous. Which really makes um, the sheep silent quite remarkable because when you put any animal in a stressful situation, They protest noisily, just like you would. The other remarkable thing that happens is that sheep become quite docile. Once that sheep is, when you go to shear a sheep, once that sheep is placed on its haunches, it doesn't make a sound. They don't struggle, they don't fight, they sit remarkably still. And I realize I'm not telling you anything here that the text hasn't said, but sheep are unusual in this way. They're not like other domesticated animals. And this is who Jesus is being compared to. Jesus doesn't get all hot and bothered. He doesn't get loud and angry. He doesn't get defensive or cheeky. But, but wait, wait just a minute. Wait, wait. Um, I mean, you guys are people too, right? You know how people act. Have you ever met anyone like this? No. We don't know anybody like this because people aren't like this. No one remains silent when they're oppressed or falsely accused. No one. No one does, right? And even the Bible supports this, right? So God, back in Exodus chapter uh, 1 and 2... God hears the people. He hears his people when they cry out to him. Once they cry out to him, God sends Moses to deliver the people. Right? The same thing happens throughout the book of Judges. Every time the people are oppressed by the nations, they cry out to God and God gives them a deliverer. God raises up someone to save them. And it's not because Israel has their life in order. It's not because Israel is holy in any way or pure. Israel, it's always when Israel is neck deep in sin that God is rescuing them. The only thing that God requires in fact to deliver Israel is that they cry out to God. So this is, this is really strange. That that the Bible here is that this prophecy is putting such an emphasis on the silence of the Savior. Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus doesn't act like us. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. Jesus always and completely obeyed his Father's will. Jesus never uttered a false word. Jesus, God's own precious son, whom God would have most definitely listened to if Jesus had cried out to him. In fact, in the, new te- in the Gospels, we, we find out Jesus is telling his disciples that if he, if he wanted to, if he called out to God to send 10,000 legions of angels, God would have done it. God would have listened to the cry, to the cry of his son. But he doesn't cry out. He doesn't cry out when he's on the cross. Why? Why wouldn't wouldn't he ask for God to rescue him? That's That's what all of us would do. Surely God would have done it. The reason that Jesus didn't cry out on the cross is because his people needed him to be silent. He did it because His people couldn't do it for themselves. Let me explain. God has to turn His back on sin. And so, instead of turning His back on you, He made His Son to be sin for us so that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, if if Jesus had cried out to God the Father, God would have rescued him, and you and me, we would still remain in our sin. We would still be in the predicament that we were in before Jesus came. If Jesus has remained silent for you, he has received God's oppression, he has received God's judgment, so that you wouldn't have to experience it. So let me ask you just by way of application Jesus has done this all for you you don't have to do anything you don't have to do anything to make yourself right with God but what do you do? Are you silent in life? Maybe I should say are we silent in life? I'll include myself in this Do we open our mouths? Do we defend ourselves? Do we justify our actions? I find that often even in my silence i'm grumbling or i'm protesting inwardly right that i've been wrong i might not say it but i'm thinking it but there's there's two rubs here very rarely are any of us truly innocent in a matter you know like if you if you think about the situation any situation that you find yourself in if you think about it long and hard rarely are you completely innocent in it. And then the second rub is that when you meet someone who doesn't defend themselves, the reason, and I'm going to say this quite plainly, the reason is always because they understand their own guilt and they understand forgiveness. And this is the power behind the words that Peter writes in Second Peter Chapter 1, the words that that uh, I, I quoted earlier. And and I encourage you to write this um, these verses down. Second Peter uh, chapter 2, sorry, not chapter 1, chapter 2, 18 through 25. I'm just going to read part of it and uh, make my point from it. Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust for to this you have been called you've been called to submit to unjust employers or, sir, or masters you've been for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled he did not revile in return When he suffered, he did not threaten, he was silent, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter is asking us to do what is impossible. He is commanding Christians to submit to just and unjust masters. And he's going to say the same things to wives. In, in chapter 3, who have harsh husbands, and then to husbands who have difficult wives. How is it even possible? How can we even do this? It only happens when we look at Jesus. It happens when we understand that Jesus has died to redeem us, to set us free from slavery to sin. We're not under the, the power of sin anymore when we're in Christ. Our problem is no different than, the, than that of Israel of old. Today, people are still enslaved to sin. It's the same old thing. For, for 6,000 years, the problem has always been sin. But if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, you no longer have to defend yourself. You no longer have to have this internal dialogue going on that's, that's defending or justifying or blame-shifting or comparing. We don't have to have that going on anymore. Because God has forgiven us in Christ. We can just confess it. We can own our sin and say, it's all on Jesus. Your Savior suffered silently in your place, submitted to his Father's will to set you free from the dominion of sin. So as we move on to verse 8, we're going to see the next point that the Messiah was slaughtered for his people. Now, verse 8 is a difficult verse to understand. We see this phrase um, in, in the second part of verse 8, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Who, who is this generation that Isaiah is referring to? And the prophecy is clearly referring to Not to Isaiah's generation, right? Now we've got to move forward 700 years. The prophecy is referring to the servant. That means Jesus' generation, Jesus' contemporaries. Well, who were Jesus' contemporaries? They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the people of Jesus' day, his disciples, right? The crowds, those were Jesus' contemporaries. So where were they? Where were these Pharisees and Sadducees? Right? They're the ones who know the Scriptures. Wouldn't they recognize the Messiah? Yeah, I mean, you'd think so. They know the Scriptures. And what's, what is this thing that they're supposed to consider? Like the text says, and as for this his generation, who considered? What is this thing that they're supposed to consider? That that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of the people. Now, when we look through this with our New Testament lenses, the meaning is pretty clear, right? We understand that the Messiah would be cut off from the land of the living, meaning that Jesus is going to be cut off from the land of the living. He is going to die his death. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 points forward to this. The same phrase is used in Daniel nine twenty-six. And we read, after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people, people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It's pointing to a day when Jesus would be crucified and cut off from the people of Israel. The Messiah would be killed for the sins of His people. And it is remarkable How accurate this is. We we can see it clearly looking backwards. But why didn't his generation consider it? Why didn't the Pharisees and the Sadducees consider it? Why did they not consider or think that the Messiah had to suffer for the sins of the people? Well, the reason why is because the Jews, while they have a theology of glorification... They don't have a theology of suffering. They, they understood that the Messiah would one day be glorified, but they did not understand that the Messiah would have to suffer. Right? This, there is no theology of suffering for a Jew. It doesn't exist. When they look at Jesus, all they see is a dried-out sucker, a weak, dirty branch... That, could break, that you could break off with a swift kick of the foot. They've always been looking for this glorious cedar, right? They want this massive, glorious tree. But they've missed the tender shoot. But this is exactly what Isaiah says the Messiah is going to look like. In verse 2, he's going to be a young plant, a root out of dry ground. Melden pointed this out last week from, from verse 2. Why, so why is this such a problem? Why can't Israel or the leaders of Israel see? Why can't they see it? Why can't? It's here. It's right here in the text. It's all very obvious. And the reason they can't see it is that though Israel has experienced suffering, right, for them, the way that they relate to God is always as their deliverer. They, they know what suffering is, but... They only see God as a deliverer. They cannot conceive that God would have to suffer. It's not that they can't understand it, it's that they refuse to see it. And so when the prophets speak about it, they reject it because they don't like the message. And so while this leaves, the Jews, while the Jews understand that there's, that sin must be atoned for, they have a a whole Old Testament uh, sacrificial system that, that tells them that their sins have to be atoned for. They, they don't believe that God, and specifically a God-man, is the only one that can atone for their sins. The reason that the Jews don't believe or don't have a theology of suffering, is because they're spiritually blind. And they're no different than we are. Right? We're in the same boat. But you know, it's right here. Right here in this text. 700 years before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah is telling Judah that the servant must die for the sins of the people. It's right here. What the Jews failed to understand, both in Isaiah's day and in Jesus' day, is that the Messiah would have to stand in the place of his people. He would have to die for their sins. You see, in, in Isaiah's day, just as it was in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the people of Israel were ignorant about how much their sin was a problem for God. And, and you know, not much has changed I'm tempted to say, you know, preachers always want to make these, these you know, big statements that are, that are all-encompassing. I'm tempted to say that we live in a time when people don't see the seriousness of their sin, that somehow we're in a really bad state of affairs today, that we're, that we're uniquely unable to see our sins. But that's just not true. It's always been the case that people don't see the seriousness of their sin, just look at our courts, our court systems. How many people ever plead guilty? Not many. And, and when people do plead guilty, right, why do they do it? Well, generally speaking, it's to get a lesser sentence. Nobody actually admits that they're guilty. And rarely do people even think of themselves as bad. And you see this, you can see this pretty clearly when you share the gospel with somebody right? As soon as you start to ask them, you know, talk to them about sin and, and you ask them, you know, do they think that they, they're good enough to get into heaven? They, they, they all say yes. People, people just generally say, yes, I'm, I'm good enough. I'm not so bad. And they diminish their sin. They don't understand how bad their sin is. I mean, how often have you ever thought something like this? I mean, I probably could ask, how, how often have you thought this this last week? I know I can ask myself this. Well, at least I'm not like so-and-so, and I compare myself to make myself feel better. Or I didn't really mean for that to happen, so even though something bad happened, my intentions mean that I'm not quite that bad. Or he did that to me, so I'm just simply responding to to him we minimize our sin we justify our sin we compare ourselves to make to others to make ourselves feel better about ourselves but no matter how hard we try our sin is a big problem last week melden told us about um he illustrated this uh how the israelites on the day of atonement would gather the leaders of Israel and they would all lay their hands on this goat and they would, that, that action would symbolize the transference of the sins of the people onto this goat and then they would chase this goat out into the wilderness. <clears throat> well, this week we have a, a, another image uh, in this passage, the slain lamb. And many, many of you already know the background for this slain lamb. This image comes from the book of Exodus. It, it goes back to the time when God is delivering Israel out of Egypt. And Pharaoh has hardened his heart nine times, and God is going to do one last, send one last plague. And this plague is going to be the death of all the firstborn of Egypt. And in order for Israel to escape judgment, they were told that they had to kill a lamb... And smear the blood on the doorposts and the lintel. And when the Lord saw the blood, he would pass over. He would overlook. And no one would die. Now we fast forward 800 years. Right? God is now speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Telling them, telling Israel, that his servant would be like a slain lamb. Fast forward another 700 years right? 1,500 years. And John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him, and he says these words, behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is that slain lamb that the Exodus event points to. And just as the blood of the Passover lamb rescued the people of Israel, so Jesus's blood rescues us. And we read in the text, he was stricken. He was killed for the sins of his people. Jesus for us. Jesus in our place. Jesus, the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That that was 2,000 years ago. What about today? What about us? Are we guilty? We have these categories for big sins, the really big no-no's, you know, like the Ten Commandment list, you know, murder, adultery, lying, stealing, coveting, disobeying parents, right? These are the kinds of sins that prodigal sons commit, you know, the really rebellious ones. But there's also a lot of little things that we don't think are so bad, the older brother sins, the acceptable sins, the sins that everyone does and no one confesses because they don't think they're so bad. The white lies, the envy, the gossip, the hoarding, the pouting. We might say they're sins. We might call them in a conversation. We might call them sins. But we don't act like they're, they're really sins. Right? We don't, we don't confess them like they're really sins. The wasting of time. We justify our sins we, we justify these things we justify our anger or our pouting because our spouse said something that hurt us or forgot to make the phone call that they promised to make or we justify our anger because our kids are fighting again or maybe for you kids here you you're you justify your anger because your parents didn't get you that thing that they promised or you didn't get that time with your friends that they said that they would give you so our, our sin is bad. It doesn't matter whether you're in the rebellious spectrum or whether you're in the the kosher sin spectrum. Whether the you're in the they're all bad. They all they all cause a rift between us and God. Our sin is so bad that the Messiah had to suffer and die for us. He had to be mistreated and oppressed. He got what we deserved. In my place, condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. People, do not make light of your sin because your Savior was slaughtered for you. The final verse, um, in the final verse, we discover kind of a strange twist in the plot we see that on the one hand God clearly is ordaining all things even the death of his son and yet he is still loving and compassionate as as this part of the prophecy is fulfilled we see the Messiah scorned but exalted and uh, understanding Isaiah 53 is difficult Um, if we were just to try and put Isaiah's glasses on and understand or try to comprehend how or what Isaiah could have understood from this passage um, as we look at verse 9 all that that Isaiah could have gathered from this prophecy is that somehow the servant's death, the Messiah's death was connected to both the wicked and the rich and that the servant was innocent in this affair in verse 9 and they made his grave with the wicked presumably that's the people who who put him to death and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth the first thing that we see here is that that they made his grave with the wicked in light of the gospel accounts this is this is really amazing we know from the the gospel accounts that Jesus was crucified between Two criminals, and it was, and we know that crucifixion is reserved for the worst of criminals. It was so horrendous that Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. These criminals would be hung on a cross to slowly die of asphyxiation, and their crosses and corpses would be would stand as a warning to everyone that Rome would not tolerate rebellion. This was the fate that was destined for Jesus, right? He was he was going to be killed. His grave was going to be with the wicked. the the um the people of the people who crucified Jesus, they would take his body and they naturally would throw it into uh, the place where criminals were. Throne, and in this case, it would probably be the valley of Hinnom, the place where the, the garbage dump of Jerusalem, the place where Ahaz burned one of his sons, offered one of his sons to Isaac, or to uh, the god Moloch. This is where they were going to bury Jesus. This is where Jesus, suffering a criminal's death, would have gone. But this isn't what happened. Look at the, at the text in verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Jesus is associated with both the wicked and the rich. But God did not let his son, he did not let his, his body, Jesus' body, see decay. This is a fulfillment of, of a passage, an Old Testament quotation in Psalm out of Psalm chapter 16. Uh, Peter quotes this in, uh, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. But instead of getting this criminal's burial, God instead causes Jesus, ordains that Jesus would be buried with the rich people, with a rich man, right? And we know that, that this is true from all four gospel accounts. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 to 60, there is a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea who, um, who's associated. He's part of the Jewish leadership, and he goes to Pilate, and he asks Pilate for the body of Jesus, And he takes Jesus' body and he puts it in his own tomb. And he buries it. Joseph of Arimathea is a very rich man. The text also makes that claim. Not only would Jesus die a criminal's death. But because of his innocence. Right? Because. And we read this here. It's because he had done no violence and there was no deceit his father saves him from a criminal's death or a criminal's burial. Instead of getting this burial God gives him, he does something miraculous and he gives him a good man's burial. And why is this important? It's important because Jesus had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. It's a small testimony to Um, the absolute perfection and righteousness of Christ. Proverbs says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we know from this text that there was no deceit found in Christ's mouth. That means that Christ was a sinless, spotless, perfect Lamb of God. It also means that at at Jesus' death, God said, no more. Jesus had fulfilled everything. He'd done it all and he'd done it well and God said they don't need to desecrate his body. This is Jesus' father looking after his son. Jesus suffered all of these things to fulfill all righteousness and with his death all the righteous requirements of the law were fulfilled. The accuracy of these prophecies ought to fill you with confidence. Now, to the unbeliever, this might all sound like legend, right? There's no facts. We're just reading a story, a a story of of fiction or a story of, of legend. But to the believer, the apostle's testimony here is the eyewitness testimony to the fulfillment of this prophecy. And there are two responses here this morning. For the believer, this text is meant to encourage your faith. Right? Only, only the God of the universe could so orchestrate events like this so, and, and fulfill them in such particular and exacting ways. This is meant to bolster your faith, to bolster your confidence that God is going to look at, if he looked after Jesus, if he fulfilled everything for Jesus, then we can trust him to keep his other promises. But for everyone here who is not trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, God is confronting your unbelief. You don't get to walk away from here this morning undecided. Indecision is a decision not to believe. This prophecy is now 2,700 years old, but we can't just shelve it in the ancient Near East literature. You've heard it. You must decide what you will do with it. Maybe you can ignore it for a day. Maybe you could ignore it for for today. Maybe even for a week. But you don't know when God will demand your life, when he will bring you home, bring you To the judgment seat where you will have to answer for everything that you've done. One day you will face, every one of us will face the judge of the universe, and you will either be judged in Christ or you will have to stand on your own two feet and answer for your own sins. Will Jesus stand in your place? Will you look to the silent Savior who submitted himself to his Father? Will you submit yourself to a Savior who submitted Himself to His Father? Will you let the slaughtered Savior stand for you? Uh, Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank You for Your Word. Father, we thank You... um, that you poured out all your wrath on your Son. Father, we, 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 we rejoice. We, we don't rejoice at this, but we, we rejoice because of it. We rejoice that our Savior suffered in our place, that he took our sins, that he bore our iniquities, Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for your obedience, for being silent for us. Father, we, we, we pray and ask that you would, you would send your Spirit, that you would fill your people with your Spirit so that we can walk like this, so that we can live this impossible life. Father, so that we can be People who love others, who suffer injustice in order to display your love for sinners. God, help us to be like Jesus in this way. Help us to know how deep your love for us is. Help us to know what it cost Jesus to suffer in our place, to die for our sins, God, and help us to know the freedom that comes from having a Savior who has borne all of our, our guilt and all of our iniquities. Father, we, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters this week. Go with them. Father, we pray that they will be strengthened um, by this word. God, we pray that they will be renewed in their hope and in their zeal to live a life that pleases you. We ask these things in Christ's name.